0: Hello, this is Leslie Garth of Tenzer, and this is Law to Fact. Today, I'm speaking with Kevin Gregg about the practice of immigration law. Today, I'm speaking with Kevin Gregg, a partner at the law firm of Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, where he practices immigration law. He's also a fellow Gator, go Gators. Mr. Gregg gives us insight into the practice of immigration law and shares a little bit about its roots and how the practice has grown today. He's also the host of the podcast Immigration Review, a weekly review of national immigration cases. I really encourage you to check it out. And by the way, in the middle of the conversation, there are some great Easter eggs about some amazing little-known job opportunities. Here's my discussion with Kevin Gregg. So thank you so much. I'm so thrilled that you can join us, a fellow podcaster and an immigration attorney. And I'm finding that at Pace Law School, we have an immigration clinic and immigration attorneys are becoming more and more important. So we have a ton to cover, but let's first start with why did you get into immigration law?
1: Well, thank you for having me on the show, Professor Tenzer. Respectfully, I believe we were (laughs) always incredibly important, us immigration attorneys. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I, I, um no, it's, it's actually, I, I'm, a, I'm a junior, and of course, I'm gonna answer your question in a sec, but I'm a junior partner at the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, which was founded by Ira Kurzban, who's kind of the godfather of immigration. Um, he's got the treatise, book on immigration it's behind me your listeners can't see it because obviously this is audio but
0: this is all audio yeah
1: (laughs) but you know when when iris started there was no immigration law so it really is something that's only really been around for for 50 years and really started getting serious after congress changed the law in a a way that was really adverse to non-citizens in 1997 but so So, yes we are getting more and more important
0: Just, I I don't mean to interrupt, but I'm curious, what happened? um, I'm not fluent in immigration law. My listeners know tort and contracts is more my wheelhouse. But what happened in 1997 that made immigration lawyers so important?
1: Well, you know, I was I was I was a child at the time, so I only know through the grapevine. But in, in 96, really, the Newt Gingrich Congress kind of pressured Bill Clinton to uh, sign this uh, this changed immigration law, and he did sign it for for reasons that I don't think many Democrats would agree with today. But it, it did change immigration law, and it, it really made it a criminal, much more criminal. It, it made a lot of things criminal. It put a lot of unfair provisions in the law. For example, you know, most people think if you marry a U.S. citizen, you got a path to a green card. It's, it's pretty much easy after the ninety seven law. That's not necessarily the case if you came here unlawfully initially, for example, even if you marry a U.S. citizen, you you can't get a green card in the U.S. So just a lot of and, you know, there's caveats like with all things in law, with everything I'm saying, but the ninety nine nineteen ninety seven 1997 law really made it really difficult and really made immigration law lawyers that much more important. I mean, pre-97, my, my boss, actually, Ira man took three cases to the Supreme Court, mostly on behalf of the, the Haitian community as a result of what the Reagan and W. Bush administrations were doing with the Haitian community. And of course, the Cuban Mariel boat lift really right. made immigration right. uh, an important thing, at least in, in Miami. But it, it was really that 96 97 law that really put immigration front and center. And you see the expansion of detention centers. Mm-hmm. Um, immigration law requires, after the 96 97 law, the incarceration of a certain amount of immigrants at any given time to private prisons. All, all of those things happened in 96 97. I mean, the Reagan administration granted amnesty. So that there and that was in the 80s, obviously. So there is a shift in the view of immigration, even in the Republican Party in 96, 97. Um, and I, I, I hate to, to, to do what I just did. So I want to answer your question specifically that you asked. And that is why that I get into immigration law. And I think that this is really important for your student listeners. The The Department of Justice has something called the Attorney General's Honors Program, which is a little known way to get into the Department of Justice right out of law school. You're only eligible for the Attorney General's Honors Program if you are directly out of law school or bridging law school with a fellowship or a federal clerkship, maybe a state clerkship. I'm not sure. And so it's this great way to get into DOJ right out of law school. But candidly, and I I didn't go to an Ivy League school, but candidly, If you didn't go to an Ivy League school or you're not valedictorian, you're probably not going to get one of those AG honors programs because they're like, you know, in the solicitor general's office, really becoming an AUSA right out of law school. You're probably not going to get them. But to become an attorney advisor in the immigration court, that is something that is in your in most law students wheelhouses. They do pick from all law schools. And there are the most positions because there are something like 50 immigration courts all over the country. And so uh, it's a, through the Department of Justice, Attorney General's Honors Program, I got selected to be an attorney advisor at the time, a two-year position with an immigration court in San Diego. It's kind of like a, a, a federal clerkship, but with immigration judges. Mm-hmm. I was marketable for that uh, Attorney General Honors Program position, though, because and this is highly advised to, to law students as well, at least it worked for me, for my 2L summer. And then I extended it into my 3L fall. I was with, uh, I went to Washington, D.C. and interned with the Department of Justice at the Office of Immigration Litigation, which mm-hmm. um, which essentially defends the decisions of the Board of Immigration Appeals, Mm-hmm. which in turn is like the Supreme Court of Immigration Judges. It defends those decisions in circuit court. So mm-hmm. I was with them for six months drafting you know, appellate briefs, and that made me very marketable for the attorney general's honors program. And I got that internship because I had a good interview at the Equal Justice Works Conference in D.C. with the right person. And I had a good interview because I was a research assistant for the immigration law professor at Boston university where I went to law school. So all of those things connect to put me into the attorney general's honors program. Mm-hmm. I then took a federal clerkship in the Southern district of Florida after the attorney general's honors program. Cause two years working for immigration judges, you know, makes you marketable for, for federal judges. And I didn't know if I was going to come back to immigration, but First of all, I didn't see anything during my one year federal clerkship that I liked as much as immigration. And two, during my federal clerkship, a certain president talking about Muslim bans won the presidency. And I thought to myself, well, I can I can be part of this. Who's going to probably be suing the Trump administration the most on issues relating to immigration? That person was Ira Kurzban, who happened to be based in Miami. And Hmm. we did sue them a lot, as did a lot of people. And we had some really important wins as well.
0: You know, it's interesting because I hear your passion. And as you're talking about it and talking about your federal clerkship and that immigration really grabbed you. It is, I guess it's like criminal defense work and criminal prosecution too, that there really is kind of that passion element that plays into it. Versus with all due respect to corporate attorneys, you know, there's there's you get to really see change in an individual and a change in an individual's lives. And so I guess that that kind of fuels one's fire, um, which is why I think so many students are starting to really want to get into immigration law. What's, what struck me too was that immigration law changed in 1997, but I really thought, two zero, um, I really thought that the um, uh, 9-11 I really would have thought that 9-11 would have really changed everything, but it changed right before that.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, 9-11 changed stuff. Uh, the, there was an amendment in 2004 called the Real ID Act. You've probably heard of the Real ID Act because it relates to the ID that you have to get to fly on an airplane. But there were changes with the Real ID Act, but the big change happens in 96, 97. Now, don't get me wrong. I mean... And I'll admit I'm a bit progressive, but I also try to relay these things truthfully. I mean, after 9/11, the Muslim community did come under surveillance. Um, there was something that the ACLU discovered called the CARP, where essentially, if uh, Muslim individuals were applying for immigration benefits, USCIS would, one uh, of the government agency, would just kind of let it sit there. If they couldn't prove anything, they would just. Let it sit there. The FBI would say, make it sit here and don't do anything on it. So there were these shadowy programs that went in. And you know, I remember, you remember 9/11 was a scary time. Um, but you know, after 9-11, the the Department of Homeland Security comes into being. And so some of those entities there, so there is a there's a bureaucratic shift, 100 percent and a surveillance shift. But as far as the statute changing. That's really 96, 97.
0: Interesting. All right. So tell us about your, I I guess not a day necessarily, but tell us about what life is like, kind of the nuts and bolts as an immigration attorney.
1: Well, there's there's really like three or four types of immigration attorneys. I'll tell you the type that I am. I think I'm the most interesting type, but (laughs) it relates to what you just said. You know, immigration attorneys do have passion. I do have passion, but- you know, you got to be careful. I didn't I didn't want to go into immigration unless I was going to go work for someone like Ira Kurzban band because you don't get paid as much. And you still ha- you do have loans if you're going to go hang your own shingle or if you go and you don't know enough, mm-hmm. you're going to probably get burned. You might have to you know, I, I saw it working for immigration judges, people coming and making arguments that and putting in work quality product that maybe they didn't stand behind but they need to make money it would be a very dangerous thing to just go out on your own and but I, I i believe strongly in federal clerkships and other clerkships to really make yourself marketable before you go into the private sector government of any of any ability and working for judges of any sort to get those resources and get those skills so you're worth more than your billable hour and just doc review. That's how you can do work that you are passionate about. And so when I went to go work for Ira Kurzban with the federal clerkship, I got to work on federal court actions. I was with Ira. We were lead of counsel with the big law firm, Mayor Brown, who was doing pro bono work. We were doing pro bono work as well. Suing the Trump administration for the termination of the temporary protected status program for Haiti. It involved 65,000 Haitian individuals. We got a 250 page injunction out of the Eastern District in New York, and then the Biden administration brought TPS for Haiti back. And now I only get to work on that kind of case because I had the federal clerkship. I also, I personally like litigation and immigration. There is immigration courts, which is an adversarial process. And so you know, that the standard litigation, brief writing, amassing your evidence and all that stuff. That's the kind of stuff that I like to do the most. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Other immigration attorneys do, and I we do, first of all, we do all these things at the firm. I do some of it, but other immigration attorneys are doing employment immigration, which is a lot of filling out forms and also amassing evidence to show that individuals are eligible for work visas, for example, mm-hmm. or people try to get people here from outside the united states which is filling out forms submitting evidence with the department of state so there are all of these different types of immigration attorneys i'm a litigating immigration attorney and i find that the most enjoyable but also the stakes are the highest cuz yeah. your client can get deported
0: yeah you know it's interesting i i will say this i've never said this before on the podcast but what scared me the most about being an attorney was representing someone because their life was on the line. Yeah. Um, I'm much more comfortable being a professor. And so I have a a question that comes from a little bit of ignorance, but um, where, how do your clients find you? Because a lot of them are not familiar with the judicial system um, and, um, or English is their second language. And so how do, how do your clients find you?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I'm I'm just starting to try and market myself and, and get clients myself. One of the things that, you know, a junior partner, a senior right. associate needs to do to, to, to be of value with the firm. You know, again, I work for this is Ira Kersband's firm. He's on his 17th edition of the treatise. He's been and it goes every two years. so He's been doing it for 34, 35 years. His name, it just you know it. Um, The Haitian community in South Florida, you know, if you're a Haitian over 40, you know, Ira Kurzban because of what he did at the Supreme Court, for example. But, you know, with Ira, it was his book that made him famous. We also get referrals from other attorneys when it maybe gets a bit more complicated. Or if you're going to do a petition for review in circuit court, you might want to come to Ira Kurzban's firm. Um, Me, myself, I have a podcast called Immigration Review, where every about that where every week I'm analyzing every published circuit court decision on immigration. And, you know, I do each decision in five to 10 minutes, there are between two and eight decisions every week. And I try and make each one a mini, a mini overview of immigration. And we've I've got a lot of immigration attorney listeners, but also non citizens and people who have non citizen family members and law students, I really try to make it such that you can learn about immigration. So that's That's how I try to do it a bit. Um, And you're in your community, but there are a lot of immigration attorneys that some are very good. Some are very respected. Some know their stuff and some don't, but they speak a foreign language and they're out on social media or they're out in billboards or they're out on Telemundo. And that's how they get clients and they're very successful at it. And again, some are fantastic and reputable, But some are exploiting. You see a lot of exploitation in immigration just because you're a member of the target community. That's not me. Um, I'm not a member of any target community. (laughs) My ancestors came here 120 years ago. But um, that's that's how a lot of people get clients in immigration is you have an in with that community.
0: Right. Yeah. You know, I I have to say a lot of immigration attorneys do not have a good reputation, you know, as a group. Yeah, Immigration attorneys. Um, and I think that's changing. And I think that's changing to your point that more of the newer attorneys are choosing immigration law, not as a way to make money, but as a way to save, you know, change lives. And so you're getting, they're getting a better reputation from that perspective. Um, so where can we find your podcast, Immigration Review?
1: Well, you can find it on the Kurzban, Kurzban Tetzeli and Pratt website. You can find it on Buzzsprout or you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. I mean, we're on Apple, Spotify, mm-hmm. a- anything really. At M um, review, review on Twitter, Instagram, all of that.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and We'll put all that on the liner notes. Please. So.
1: My email is kgreg at kktplaw.com. I'm always happy to talk to law students or anyone about the podcast or about immigration law.
0: Mm-hmm. So you gave us some really good suggestions for students who want to get involved in immigration law, which is, and you gave us a whole host of things from as, as, you know, as entry level, so to speak, as being a research assistant for a immigration lawyer to applying for the um, Department of Justice honors, honors program, right? Yes. Um, you know, and it is a lot of our listeners, a lot of students don't have the accessibility Two federal clerkships, but to your point, it can be any kind of clerkship. So I think it sounds to me like just demonstrating an interest in immigration law prior to going out and practicing is going to be something that's really going to help.
1: Well, you know, to be clear, I I did pretty good in law school. I wasn't valedictorian and I didn't, you know, I didn't go to an Ivy League school either. I applied to 200 federal clerkships in law school. I got rejected from all of them. It wasn't until two years in the attorney general's honors program that I even started to get interviews. So, you know, sometimes it's not right away. You can build yourself after law school into a federal clerkship. But um, you know, I, I never did an immigration clinic in law school. I wish I had, but I also mm-hmm. didn't wish I had because it kind of takes over your life. And I was interested in in, in learning other things. But certainly get it to be marketable for the Attorney General's Honors Program, you need to have a basis in immigration. And right. so doing a clinic at at your law school certainly makes you very marketable doing anything with the government and ideally with um in immigration with the government, an unpaid or a paid internship. I never had a paid internship in law school. I think that's unfair, but it's it was a reality. And, and it resulted eventually in a very successful early career by using those unpaid internships. But, you know, the attorney general's honors program, the job after law school, there is a very unknown summer legal internship program for rising three L's for your two L summer. And I didn't even know about that. Most people don't know about that and it's paid and it pays well. And if you get into the attorney general's honors program, slip program, summer legal internship program, I mean, you really have to mess up to not get the funnel offer. So it is this wonderful hidden gem And I didn't even know about it, but uh, law students rise, uh, 1Ls, the the application is usually, I believe, due at the end of August, early September for 1Ls for the SLIP program and then for 2Ls for the Attorney General's Honors Program. Mm -hmm. You get that SLIP internship, it's paid, (laughs) and you essentially have a funnel out for Mm-hmm. If you do decent, <laughs>
0: that's good. That's good to know. That's great to know. Um, so if you had not had the, if you adopted a research assistant for an immigrate, well, I guess, let me, let me change the way I'm asking this. Did you seek out the immigration professor to be a research assistant because you wanted to do research in immigration? Did you want to just be a research assistant? Did it happen that just that's who found you? um, or, you know, was it more calculated or was it more fortuitous?
1: I wish I could say it was more calculated because it's really frustrating when I'm giving advice to law students. Cause I remember being on the other side of these conversations and being what, like, what am I supposed to do with this? You know, the, the luck you're saying, but I had a difficult time getting a one L internship. And so I did, I want, I just want to be a research assistant. I reached mm-hmm. out to this professor. I ended up getting another position at the same time. And then she, I, she was, I, she, I kind of used well, not used. I mean, I worked for her for a little extra money during law school, but also right. it's a good position to work for a, for a professor. And it just happened to be that she was also the clinical immigration professor. But the work I was doing for her actually had nothing to do with U.S. immigration law at all. It was like macro refugee issues mm-hmm. um, on a worldwide scale uh, and more academic Now, she definitely, you know, she had research assistants that worked in U.S. immigration law and in her clinic, but that was not me. What working for her did at the Equal Justice Works Conference, which is always in D.C. in October, was it gave me some credibility because, you know, I was working for a professor and it gave me a story. I mean, it touched on immigration. It showed that I was interested in immigration. I probably Mm -hmm. shouldn't have gotten that oil internship. There were more qualified people than me, but I had a really good interview. I don't know how else to explain it. I had a story because of my work for this professor. I'm forever grateful. Mm -hmm. And actually, I hadn't even taken immigration law yet. I went back to BU. By this point, it's mid-2L fall. The immigration Mm -hmm. seminar is only taught in the fall. So, you know, I can't get into that. The only other class is a immigration clinic in the spring. And I bet, which obviously has the seminar class as a prereq. And I begged that professor, you got to let me in. I'm going to, to D.C. in the summer. You got <laughs> to right, <right>, learn. Right. <laughs> and that was the steepest learning. And he let me in. And that was the steepest wow. learning curve I've ever had. And so I wouldn't recommend that path. But also, you know, if you're a 1L, if you're a 2L and you know you want to be an immigration lawyer, you are already ahead of me and I've had a fortunate career so far. So pat yourself on the back. And if you don't know, you know you can do, just put yourself in the best position to be the best attorney you can be. Anybody can learn any subject area. Right. You, but right. You, if you can't write, if you don't know how to research, if you're not a good lawyer, then you're screwed. So anybody can pivot um, subject areas, at least for the first 10 years, in my yeah. opinion.
0: I think that's true. But, and I think you say something, too, that's of value, regardless of whether you want to be an immigration lawyer or any attorney. You know, I have, I, use, I have a lot of research assistants. and I love working with student research assistants. But rather than, you know, they always put on their resume that they were my research assistant. But I like your idea of turning it into a story. So, for instance, if one of my students is working, I, I'm an editor for Matthew Bender, and if one of my students is working on asylum work, then they can make that a story about their experience in asylum work rather than just, oh, I was her research assistant. And so what you're telling listeners, which is actually brilliant, is package yourself based on your experience. And if it's not necessarily what you want, it can get you to where you want to be. And I think that's super helpful advice.
1: It took my entire 1L year to realize that no one really cared about my career except me yes the law my research <laughs> is, the research assistant professors there are great mentors but you know once you get to law school everyone is really qualified and what separates someone from someone else is kind of arbitrary it took an entire year to realize it maybe longer like you need a story you need to be compelling and you need to give them a reason to care about you, the person on the other side, because most people aren't special. Once at that law school level, everyone's really smart. And what, what, what differentiates you? What, what makes you different than someone else? And, uh, and with me, and I think a lot of people, it's something that you're passionate about that you can talk about, and you can give the listener a story that makes them say, you know what, I'm going to give that person a chance.
0: That's great, great advice. Um, Let me ask you something else. What would be, if you had to pick one piece of advice for law students in addition to this idea of a story, um, what's something else you want law students to know about for their career?
1: There is absolutely no reason not to try to get some sort of clerkship with a judge. There is zero, nobody needs the. First of all, the money is not that bad, but nobody needs the big firm salary that bad right out of law school to say it's not worth it. It gives you control over your career. It makes, like I said, it makes you worth more than just your billable. It allows you to go that you can go, There are some, there are many offices that won't let you work on certain types of work. If you haven't had a mm-hmm. uh, clerkship, there is nothing bad about it. There's no reason not to pursue it for the first couple of years out of law school. And if you, you know, then they're very, they're very hard to get, especially federal clerkships. And uh, believe me, I know, again, 200 applications. Um, <laughs> as someone who's read a lot of the applications, you can the, the, the law clerks reading them or whoever is can smell BS. So you really mm-hmm. do have to research your judge and really explain um, why this judge but if you can't get a clerkship, I, I really recommend government work early on in a career, no matter what it is. And I'm, I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm a non-citizens attorney. Go to ICE, at mm-hmm. least under the Biden administration. <laughs> because if you're not, because with the government, you get you, you get paid to work. Government attorneys work hard, but you also get paid to learn because nobody cares. You're not, oh, the salary is the salary. Right, when right, you have a client right. looking at your billable, though. Mm-hmm. You can't, you can't just you can't just learn unless you're with a really understanding, really wealthy firm. And I'm, I'm not even aware of that because at the end of the day, there's a client looking at that bill. So right. learn as much as you can, whether it's government or a federal clerkship or another type of clerkship early in your career. So when you cash in your chips and you go private, you can go to the place you want to be, and mm-hmm. again, you can be something worth more than just a workhorse
0: and early on your career doesn't mean your first year out you like you can work for two years and and then try so if you don't get one right out of out of law school you can work for a year and try again to get a, an internship um how helpful is networking for purposes of getting a federal clerkship
1: i don't know um it wasn't how i got it mm-hmm. i and oh. i i don't you know, federal clerkships, judges are especially. You know, federal judges they're they don't want to have any appearance of impropriety. Um, I don't know. I don't know how important it is. It certainly doesn't help and It certainly doesn't hurt to know the law clerks and to to and to to get through the first realm of applications. You know, federal judges get a thousand applications to get mm-hmm. past the administrative assistant and the law clerks and to the judge's desk. Maybe it helps a bit but but what you said with the two years out yeah a lot of federal judges won't even take people out of law school anymore except maybe some people from the ivy leagues a lot of people Mm -hmm. are judges are requiring um often a firm experience or like me they worked people who worked for a different type of judge as i say you either have to Really have that civil procedure, that knowledge that you get as a litigation associated at a big firm that makes you marketable to a federal judge. Do that for a couple of years or like me, learn how to write like a judge by working for other judges
0: mm-hmm. and then
1: go. But if you can't do either of those, if you're just floundering around because you don't have a really good grasp on federal courts and civil procedure or alternatively, if you're still finding your writing voice. You're in for some big trouble, right? In the federal clerkship when you're getting just hit with giant caseloads. And the judges know that, which is exactly why early in your careers, those first five years, even, you know, mm-hmm. that's where you're marketable. And then you can pivot in, and then you can do whatever you want with your career.
0: Yeah. You know, I, I always tell my students that, and you said this too, you know, it's all about legal research and writing, that you can learn anything, but you really. And, and, and I think that your, your time is so well spent in law school learning about research and writing. We are running out of time, but I do want to talk to you about um, going back to your podcast. I'm, I, because I have a podcast, I'm like obsessed with other podcasters. <laughs> and you know, and I, I love my podcast because I get to meet all different people that I, and I get to learn. And so just tell us a little bit about why you started your, law, your podcast. Um, do you do your own research for your podcast? Just tell us a little bit about it
1: again, you know, thanks for for having the question. and i I love it too. it's It's really fun. It's really cool, and it's 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 killing me. <laughs> it's
0: a lot of work, right? I, it is a crazy amount of
1: work. It's a crazy amount of work. and and my podcast, and I, I do some interviews of people, and I really enjoy it. I'll have like five special episodes a year. I've only had it since may twenty twenty. I'll do like five special episodes a year that are an interview. And even that takes a lot of editing. But my podcast, like I said, I'm reading these precedential decisions, which as you know, can be anywhere from five to 65 pages. So Mm -hmm. when like last week, the first circuit issues a 65 page or courier new font, you know, there goes my night. So yeah, (laughs) no, I'm reading the entire decision, Mm -hmm. outlining it in a way and then, and then, and then recording it myself on Saturday, editing it myself on the weekends and publishing it. It it takes, takes a lot of work and I've done, 90 of the, oh, I'm on episode 91 now because it's been wow. every week since May 2020. It's been probably over a thousand decisions. But at the mm-hmm. same time, now my case law outline is like a thousand pages long. I can control find any issue. Um, I've got a a good following. And it makes me such a better attorney reading all these decisions. Yeah, it's what all attorneys really should be doing in their area of practice, but nobody Mm -hmm. can do it. And by doing the podcast, it's given me a reason to do it. And yeah, actually, the idea was my wife's, I really wanted to do something when the pandemic hit, I'd always had all these ideas. Mm -hmm. And then she just said, why don't you just do a case law podcast? And I said, that's, a great idea. (laughs) And so (laughs) the the pandemic without the commute to and from work gave me those extra hours a week to to start this thing. And then it got some momentum. So that's, that's why the podcast for me.
0: That's terrific. I, it is the, the editing is so laborious. I don't think (laughs) people realize it Mm. is a lot of work, but it's, it's interesting because people think podcasts are to educate listeners, but I think that the hosts get an education out of it too. And um, you know, it's, 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 there's a million podcasts I know out there, but I'm really, I, anyone who podcasts, I have a special place in my heart for. Um, <laughs> so is there anything else you want to tell um, our listeners that you think they should know?
1: Well, there's so much I wanted. We barely touched on immigration. But, you know, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> what can what can you do now? You know, um, your listeners, I, I understand your listeners are probably a lot of law students. I feel for them that it's been a, a remote world for them. Yeah. That That's not, it's really unfortunate. Um, I'm sorry about that. I'm sure that it's been OK, but also some things were missed. So, you know, hang in there. And realize, you know, I'm, I'm at the point in my career now that the people I went to law school with who went to big firms are starting to become like, you know, partners they are starting to get mm-hmm. promoted. I'm nine years out. It, so much cha- has changed from between then and now. What you're doing now is important, but in five years, you will not be tethered to anything that happened now. It, it just every day is a new day. Every year is a new year and try and find your passion and it might take a while and good luck.
0: (laughs) That's great advice. That's great advice. It is, it is, it is, it's a really um, useful gift to have a legal career, a legal education, I should say, um, and to be able to use it. I know we'll have to have you back to talk about the nuts and bolts of immigration practice, but I think that this has been particularly helpful for our listeners um, and those who want to be involved in internet, of uh, immigration, not internet, <laughs> immigration law. Um, and I will post your podcast and I'll post you've graciously said that you'll speak to anyone. So I'll post your contact information. And I really appreciate that you took the time to talk to me today. Thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Professor. And, I, you know, before we go, I know you went, you're a double uh, University go of Florida Gators. alumni. Go Gators. Yeah. I went there for undergrad. Go Gators. It must be said and said often.
0: That's right.
1: <laughs> Thanks for having me on your show. Thank you.
0: And my, my research assistant is a Gator now, too. Oh, off the pace, so I love go Gators. it. <laughs> Thanks so much. Bye-bye. So that's my discussion with Kevin Gregg. I've included links to his podcast, his Twitter feed, and his email. Mr. Greg is happy to mentor anyone interested in immigration law, so feel free to reach out. And again, I really encourage you to listen to his podcast, not just if you're interested in immigration law, but it gives you a sense of any kind of law you want to wrap your head around, and maybe you'll start a podcast of your own. And speaking of podcasts, if there's a topic about which you'd like us to address or a person with whom you'd like us to speak, shoot us an email at lawtoffact at gmail.com, and we'll try to make it happen. That's it for today. Enjoy your day.